Welcome to Real Talk for Real Teachers. I'm Dr. Becky Bailey, the creator of Conscious Discipline, an expert in education, child development, and a lifelong teacher and learner. For those listening who are not aware of Conscious Discipline, it is a comprehensive, trauma-informed self-regulation program that integrates three wonderful things, social-emotional learning, school culture, and discipline or classroom management. In general, it provides adults and children with the skills to be disciplined enough to set and achieve goals, conscious enough to know you're off track, and connected enough to others so you are willing to persevere and return to your chosen path. Today, we're talking about conscious discipline and testing. So many of you listening have lived through now over a decade of high-stakes testing. And interesting enough, I look all this stuff up before I start, that testing cost $1.7 billion a year per state. Interesting. So according to research, I'm just going to go through a little bit of research. Most of you know this by what you do and your practical upfront and close view of it all. But according to the research, here's some things that have emerged that it has created kind of a narrowing of the curriculum and a loss of creativity as teachers focus on preparing students for testing. And interestingly enough, the estimate is about 50% of time in school overall has been moved to test taking. And before the No Child Left Behind, children took about four to six tests a year, but now the average is 18, 18 tests a year. The second thing that came out in uh, the themes of the research is that it's very discouraging. Students' academic potential is not accurately portrayed, and especially for at-risk children and children with English as a second language who are severely overtested. And so this discourages both children and teachers. The pressure on school educators and students is intense, and there's an estimated 40% of students have test anxiety. Now, that's over a million kids, and these anxieties rise exponentially between grades second and fourth. And the final themes is that the research shows the impact of labeling and shaming. I know many times, you know, our school's an F, ours is a D, ours is an A. But it also has shed light on that we need more legitimate functions of testing to be uh, explored and explained and used and universal. And the last one is huge because it interferes to some degree with the teacher-student relationship, which is the basis of all learning. So it's interesting to me that states have tried many things. So here's what we're doing now. States have tried to reward and punish schools for their test scores. So if you do good, we give you some money. If you don't do so good, you know, you're on the naughty list. We've tried to reward and punish teachers So I'll give you more money as a teacher if your test scores go up or you'll not receive that. And then 25 states have tried to reward and punish students, actually giving students something. And when you look at this, when you look at these incentives that have been given and you look at the research, the meta-analysis of the research by the National Research Council, it says it does little if nothing. And I find that hugely ironic because our belief in punishment and rewards is so instilled in our culture and our education system. We're trying it now with the mass movement. We're trying it with schools itself. And again, we come down to 
those incentives are not the best motivators to do what we're trying to do. So today we're talking with Cynthia Robinson Rivers, who is the head of school at Van Ness Elementary in Washington, D.C. Cynthia has implemented conscious discipline uh, since she opened the school in 2015, and she's recently won an award in innovation for her social-emotional learning practices. Cynthia has been honored by D.C. Public Schools with a Rubenstein Award for Highly Effective Leadership. I've had the privilege of meeting Cynthia in a roundtable discussion hosted by the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. She is brilliant, she's passionate, and she's a phenomenal leader in education and has done other things with leadership that we'll hopefully get in as we talk. So welcome, Cynthia, to Real Talk for Real Teachers. Thank you so much, Dr. Bailey. It's uh, good to be with you. So first, Cynthia, tell us about Van Ness Elementary and kind of how you came about conscious discipline and the role it's played and and did it help in any way get you where you wanted to go? Yep. Uh, Venice is a public school, part of District of Columbia Public Schools in Washington, D.C. We're in the southeast neighborhood and we're a school that had been closed for a number of years before 2015 when we reopened uh, with a small group of pre-kindergarten and kindergarten students. Um, We reopened with the opportunity to grow slowly, grade by grade over time. Um, We had a renovated building. We had a team of teachers and staff members that I was able to all hire. Oh, wonderful. Yes. Um, And we are a very diverse school by both socioeconomic status and race and ethnicity of the students. So we started small with just 85 kids. We are now up to third grade and have 275 kids. Um, And we have been so proud of the work we've done around socio-emotional learning, which was the foundation of what we did that first year in the 2015-16 school year. So I didn't know this, but that's exciting. So you were able to start with a pre-KK, and are you adding grades each year? How high will you go? We will go up to fifth grade in the year 2021. Wow. Now, did you get to pick that, or how did they come across this? Makes so much sense to me. Yeah, it's kind of a luxurious way to start a school. It is, Um, absolutely. Yeah, the way I explain it, we are starting with some of the sort of tenets of how a a charter school might start in that you get to grow grade by level by grade level, hire your own staff, come with a new building space. But luckily, with all of the um, supports and resources of a school district to, to help us, Um, So it was a great way to start a school. I'm deeply appreciative of that opportunity. You know, that makes sense. It seems like to me at times, depending on how you define the charter schools and and the rules around them, they do get a little easier go at some things, you know, and I always thought if we could take the brilliance of the charter movement and put it into public school, we'd all have a, a better shot at achieving our goals. Do you believe that? Sure. I think there are lots of practices in charter schools that um, public schools would benefit from from copying. Um, and I definitely think that those aspects of how we started are, you know, benefit charter schools nicely. They would probably tell you that there are other aspects of being a charter that, you know, set them up a little with a little less um, success than public schools, such as, you know, facilities or, you know, budgeting. But, you know, being able to start new and most importantly, being able to pick a team who, for me, was not only super talented teachers, but also people who I knew would be invested in some of those practices, such as conscious discipline that we knew we wanted to start with. Beautiful. So let's shift to testing a bit and talk about that. The average cost of testing per student in the United States is $65 per child. 
But in Washington, D.C., it's $114 per child. What are y'all doing up there? Do y'all test more, or is it just the cost of living or the cost of doing business? I'm not sure. I know that we take the park assessment in every spring. Um, we also take a science test that's aligned to the next generation science standards. Um, but we have um, some throughout the year testing that may account for that higher higher number that you hear. So for math, for example, our students might take an uh, iReady assessment for reading. Um, we use a company called Amplify and kids take a test text reading comprehension test or TRC and a Dibbles test, which is dynamic indicators of basic early literacy skills. Each of those are beginning of the year, middle of the year, end of the year. And, you know, there are contracts and licenses that have costs associated with it. That may be the reason why our testing number is a bit higher than other places. You know, I gave some data that the themes they found over the research with that. How are you handling this kind of push on testing and buffered it to make sure that your environment, uh, you know, still has the love of learning and the creativity? Or did you kind of circumvent that by just grabbing brilliant, effective teachers? Well, having strong teachers helps. So the fundamental tier one instruction happening in our classrooms is is highly effective. Um, And that's a really, really important start. Uh, I think second to that, we have a robust response to intervention or RTR process where we're quickly identifying kids that may have deficit areas and then assigning either people resources or additional time resources or additional materials um, to to close some of the gaps that they may have. Um, Those two things certainly, certainly help us. You bet. So now how have, in your mind, because I know you're well-read and well-studied as well as a wonderful leader in just your own right, just by the nature of who you are. How do you think that social-emotional learning in general, and maybe conscious discipline specifically, has helped kind of buffer this testing movement or align with it? How do you see that social-emotional learning testing are coming together or apart, or how do they relate? Well, we, the reason why we started with a focus on socio-emotional learning, and that first year we didn't do professional development, professional learning sessions about anything else other than our conscious discipline book study um, that we read that year and Carol Dweck's mindset that we read um, the summer earlier. Um, And the idea was that before we can get to critical thinking, if you look at Um, frameworks such as Maslow's hierarchy or the new building blocks framework that came out of the turnaround for children um, white paper, you see the fundamental, the bottom tier, the bottom part of those pyramids are things like safety, sense of belonging. Um, If we don't have those things in place, we're not going to be able to touch cognition and higher level thinking and critical thinking. Um, And so we started with that. So you know, when whenever I speak with people about the value or the importance of socio-emotional learning, um, as if there's some false dichotomy between spending time on that and spending time on academics, I always say, you know, the two are not mutually exclusive. And in fact, giving kids these needed socio-emotional skills helps them to be available to the academic instruction that will help them then do well on the test. You bet. And, you know, the kind of the simple formula is that to be successful, we need low stress and high challenge. And it seems like we, we continually focus on upping our challenges in school so that we have high expectations and all that. And 
uh, exciting, dynamic curriculum that's meaningful and engaging. But we haven't historically dealt anything with that stress level, especially if our kids are coming from stressful situations. And I don't know a human in this world right now that's not coming from a stressful situation. So we've dealt with the high challenge, and we haven't necessarily done anything to lower the stress. Have you seen the impact of the social-emotional learning in your school on the teachers, too? Does that tend to lower their stress? Yes, and that's who we started with. Um, When we first started learning about these topics and talking about them with teachers, we asked them, what are your triggers? How were you raised? How were you disciplined? Reflect on how that impacts how you discipline children, and is it the right way or the wrong way, and how can you sort of unlearn some habits that may have been very, very deeply ingrained in you from a young child. Um, and then secondly, we say, well, think about your triggers, like what gets you out of your, you know, composed state. Um, and once you identify those, think about and problem solve and work with your colleagues to find ways that you can gain calm because you need to be calm to be available to help a child gain calm. So yes, we do a lot of work around, you know, teacher stress, and that's a focus this year for us as well, teacher wellness. And it certainly um, impacts the kids. We had a yoga mindfulness teacher come during our week of professional learning two weeks ago. um, And she said, you know, um, your your state is is the default state of your classroom. Even if you think you're hiding it, even if you're agitated inside and you think you're maintaining a calm voice, your kids can feel it. And kids, you know, better than adults can pick up and sense on other human beings in their state. And so she, she talked about the value of us figuring out how to truly gain calm, not pretend calm when we're working with Right. People. I mean, you know, it's the saying, my state dictates your state. And I often refer to, you know, those who have dogs. I mean, it's a thing that mammals can do. So your dog generally knows when you're stressed, even if you think you're not emitting anything. And a child certainly has those skills way above that of a dog. So what have you seen? Have you seen any systemic side effects with this much testing on other schools that don't focus on the social-emotional health first? Sure. I mean, they they do lead to high-stress environments. And kids in D.C., especially given the number of students we have who are at risk, need ways to disengage stress and to reset that cortisol more than a typical kid may need. So when you see things like recess being reduced or taken away, like, which is the primary opportunity for a child to release that cortisol. Um, you then inevitably see, you know, more difficult afternoons, kids who are even more <laughs> stressed. And so, I don't know, we have had, have a extended um, lunch recess period. We've encouraged teachers to take an additional mid-morning recess. Um, each of the teachers incorporates into their planning movement breaks. Sometimes they use, you know, go noodle and other yeah programs to facilitate that others who feel more comfortable lead it themselves. But, you know, this understanding that kids moving and getting active is a big part uh, of their release of stress, especially kids who have faced trauma, who who have a large number of adverse childhood experiences in their history. Have you had any pushback from uh, higher ups in your quest to uh, do what we know is right for kids? So far, no, but I believe that's because in tandem with doing these things, we've also had strong indicators of academic success. Um, And so that's why I do feel it's important for us as we engage children in 
um, teaching strategies of emotional self-regulation and all the skills that, um, that we're aiming to teach them that we're not forgetting that we do have to have a good RTI process, that we do have to make sure we're intervening if kids are um, academically running behind. I do, though, say to my teachers that we should, one, look at individual students and their needs, not them as numbers, and two, have realistic expectations for them. So for many of our students, especially if they came to us very, very far behind, we'll think of the plan for them as a two-year plan. rather than a by the end of this year plan. And that probably might be criticized as not being urgent enough. And I'm sure I could do things that might not be good for that whole child that does emphasize reading, math, intervention, and maybe they can't um, go outside for as prolonged a recess, or they don't get to spend time in the makerspace or some of the centers that are less academically focused and get them on level by the end of the year. But have I given them meaningful life experiences during that year? And the answer to that is no. So we say, let's come up with our two-year plan. That means at the end of this year, there may be some disappointing academic scores, but we know in two years, we'll have a child who is succeeding academically, who has also been you know, allowed to go on field trips, engaged in centered play and center instruction that isn't just math and reading, And they're all the better for that at the end of those two years. And that certainly takes the pressure off a teacher, too. You can hear the whole world when you're talking go, oh, just a huge sigh that you're allowed a child to be a child and a teacher to be a teacher and holding that whole child as a whole being as opposed to just cramming stuff in them. So what are some of the other things that that specifically that you have done that you think would be interesting to other principals and, of course, uh, teachers as they're listening? Sure. Well, we think about our socio-emotional approach um, in three categories. Our fundamental school-wide approach is conscious discipline. And so everyone is practicing rituals and the structures and using the language Um, that conscious discipline has taught us. Um, We also work with a behavior consultant who has deep, deep knowledge of, you know, figuring out the function of behavior um, and understanding kids who are usually in the 5% of kids with very, very tricky behaviors um, that are hard to figure out. Sometimes these are the kids that are on the spectrum, for example. Right. Um, And then thirdly, we work with a partner organization that um, provides family therapy through a clinical psychologist and who provides parent behavior trainings um, so that what we're doing during the day can also be extended to um, students' home lives with their families um, at night. And then those things are bolstered by other practices that we engage in, such as home visits. Last year, we visited 96% of students' homes where we're able to make those deep connections with families so that um, the relationships are strong, which allows us to share information with safety and connection with. Right. I was going to ask you about that family therapy and stuff, but then when you said 96% home visits and building that connection with the family, once you get that connection, I'm sure all those families appreciate the additional support they're getting. Do you get any pushback from families or Sometimes, yes. Not as much now that we've been doing this work for so long, but I do think it's it's very different than how our parents and families may have been raised. And so sometimes they 
might misunderstand conscious discipline as like being too easy on the kids or too nice yes. to where um, one, we've sort of had to model an assertive voice and how we drop the please and the thank you. And we say, actually, no, this is very firm, this, this approach. And two, we've had to talk about consequences in the kind that are most um, impactful in a lifelong way. I talk with the parents a lot about you know, Pavlov and Skinner. And I say, you know, if I'm looking for short-term results, sure, I could just take your child's recess away or you could paddle them. And in the short term, we might get a behavior change. But what we're looking for is kids who have made a lifelong change and who have a lifelong skill and who are self-managed. And for those extrinsic consequences, they're not developing the skill in the child. And I give examples usually of kids who have been in systems that are very heavily based on rewards and punishments in an elementary school, go to middle school, and they have a really hard time. Or, you know, from middle school to high school or even high school to college. And how teaching these skills that we do takes longer in many cases and is tougher work. But the outcome is that, you know, certainly by fifth grade, but what we're seeing is, you know, usually by the end of a couple of years with us, our kids have very real skills that they use. And since we're growing, we've actually seen some great examples of this where when we had kindergartners who had been with us since they'd been in pre-K three, they'd been in pre-K four, and then they had them in kindergarten. And then we had new kindergartners who had been in schools that were more rigid and did have like the red, yellow, and green flip charts or like, you know, punishments. Often those new students, they were academically so successful. They knew every letter, every letter sound, um, but would fall apart emotionally so easily. And the students who were in their third year with us, even though they were only five years old, they couldn't even understand. They would say, you know, they would come to their teacher and say, you know, why doesn't so-and-so just go into the safe space and take deep breaths? Um, Because they had so learned how to, you know, use strategies to calm down. And that juxtaposition was just striking for us. Um, That's an amazing story. One of the things that promoted the use of conscious discipline was the children. The preschool kids, maybe they were in Head Start or wherever they were, came to kindergarten and they were able to regulate, like you said, very different than the other kids. Mm -hmm. And then the kindergarten teacher said, what in the world are y'all doing down there? Then those kids went to first grade. And the first grade teacher, what did you do? Because they look so different than their counterparts who came from, you know, the charts and the flipping and the punishment and rewards. So that was a very interesting story. So we're going to sum up now. So for those listening, can you just say, if I was going to try to express the importance of the social-emotional foundation that you said and and kind of relate it to testing, you know, because that pressure on teachers, you know, that my salaries could go up or not go down, or my school's money budget could change based on just this one test or this two tests. That pressure out there is humongous on teachers. And that alone is saying, I don't have time. I don't have time for the social emotional. I don't have time. I've got to get this test score up because it impacts my life directly. What are like three things that you could just share with them, the number three things that they could remember or hold on to in that kind of panic state of our uh, national movement? I would say one, 
taking time for both physical activity, things that promote physical well-being, and socio-emotional learning and activities that allow kids to be better self-regulated actually gives you more time during those academic blocks. So extending our recess period makes the afternoon time more effective and probably more learning happens than if we took away recess and tried to push kids through an afternoon academic block, for example. So it seems like you're taking time away from core academics, but really you're adding time because you're so much more efficient when kids are in that executive state. Beautiful. I would say, secondly, it doesn't actually take that much time. We engaged um, the teachers in an activity during our um, professional development week where, you know, we asked them to pair up and we asked them a series of three questions, one sort of surface question, one a little bit deeper question. And then the last question asked you to like really divulge something personal. And you could watch their body language change as they were discussing. They started leaning into one another. Some people were crying. Some people were laughing. And when we debriefed, they talked about how it was incredible that in this 15-minute activity, they felt like they really got to know another person as a human being. And then we talked about how that took 15 minutes of our seven-and-a-half-hour day. And that personal connection will help us through that whole day to know there's someone we can trust and depend on. And we have seven and a half hours with kids. So your morning meeting lasting 20 minutes, 15 minutes of which are very explicit time for kids to make connections, gain skills of um, gain socioemotional skills is not that long. But the payoff is enormous in terms of, you know, kids enjoyment while they're at school and then kids ability to function while at school. And that's a brilliant way to relate it to people to let them experience it. Mm-hmm. You know, as opposed to sit and get, just experience this and what was the impact on you and you could certainly see and I I love the notion that, you know, cognitively adults and children are very different. Social emotionally, we're not all that far apart. Mm-hmm. And what would be the third one? Well, I would just direct people to all the research that's out there and not even, you know, give my own personal anecdote. You know, you can look at studies of kindergarten that show, you know, executive functioning skills are far better correlated to academic success years later in life than knowing your letters and numbers and sounds. Um, And I, I would guess that, you know, that's been done with very young learners, but I would bet there are studies out there that also have similar findings for kids that are a little bit older. You bet. Um, so, you know, in, if you get a kid who can calm themselves down or understand, you know, the, the needs and rights of, of others and empathize with them, who can collaborate with others. When you look at the Google list of traits that they look most for in their, their best new hires, 90% of them are socio-emotional skills. They're not, you know, can do math, can read really well. And so by giving kids those skills, you are helping them to be college and career ready. And and those are some of the traits that are the hardest to gain, but companies are saying are the most important for workers and their employees. Uh, Those are beautiful, and they make so much sense. You know, it's uh, without doing that, what I see so often around the country is, especially with at-risk kids, is 
because they can't work independently, they can't regulate themselves enough to attend or to to do anything, they leap to whole group instruction with a lot of control. And then they try to cram things in as opposed to backing up and building the foundation so that they can work independently. They can work in a small group. They can manage themselves enough so that we can actually take our curriculum and they can engage in the world we provide them. So I want to thank you so much, Cynthia, for joining us and for your brilliance and for sharing it with us. And I hope you come back and talk to us. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. All righty. And so celebrations. So one of the celebrations we have here going on at Conscious Discipline that at 2017, 2018, we hit the 5 million visits to our website. So that was a nice celebration. And our free resources are the most popular, and we add more and more to them each day. We have schools, teachers, administrators who come up with something brilliant that also want to upload. So Keep checking on the free resources because we keep adding those that we hope you will enjoy. And what's Becky up to? Well, I've studied intensely the polyvagal theory by Stephen Porges in the past, and now I'm, I'm revisiting it with new eyes and a, a greater understanding in regard to trauma as I have looked at my own in my own life. So if you're not familiar with the polyvagal theory, you might want to check it out on YouTube Uh, His book itself is kind of a hard read, but it's an important one. So with all that said, until next time, I wish you well. For more episodes of Real Talk with Real Teachers by Dr. Becky Bailey, visit ConsciousDiscipline.com forward slash podcasts. You can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app.